Greetings and welcome to episode 57 of Beyond Hua Xia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today, our topic is a date, August 6, 1945. Now, most of you know what that means. We're talking about the atomic bomb. And today, we're going to examine all the factors that fed into the decision to drop the most terrible weapon that had ever been devised by humankind uh, deliberately with the intent to kill other human beings. Uh, we have to sort of phrase it in that way because it's not the first time an atomic bomb was detonated because there were tests out in the desert in the United in the south, southwestern United States before you actually dropped the first bomb. Uh, but with the intent to kill in wartime um, with mass casualties, that is August 6, 1945. Now, a sort of way of introduction to this topic, um, I sort of want to uh, uh, talk a little bit about the odd phenomenon of how our historical memories are are uh, uh, developed and constricted uh, depending on what culture, what country, what part of the world that we grow up in. Um, think about this. Outside of Japan, most countries uh, commemorate or remember or teach about the various Japanese atrocities, things that we've already been talking about in the last couple of episodes. Nanjing Massacre, Unit 731, the Comfort Women. Uh, we didn't really cover the Bataan Death March, uh, but, you know, the basically Japanese treatment of uh, American and British and Australian POWs, prisoners of war. Uh, sometimes Pearl Harbor gets thrown in there as well, sort of this nefarious sneak attack, unprovoked. Um, and look at all the people who died at uh, uh, Pearl Harbor as well. Um, and then oftentimes, it's not just we sort of from a Euro-American perspective, but also in Asia as well. Uh, much of this is, uh, uh, you know, uh, part and parcel of many of the uh, official public discourses and teaching pedagogy that many uh, Asian countries, uh, particularly in uh, China, have towards the Japanese as well. And they often, we criticize things like the Yasukuni Shrine, uh, where war martyrs uh, for the past thousand years in Japan, um, you know, where where their ashes are kept or where memorial tablets are kept and parents go uh, and uh, uh, remember uh, the, the dead. Sometimes whenever politicians go to this sort of thing, it creates an international, um, uh, you know, brouhaha in which various uh, uh, leaders, who uh, politicians from countries who feel like they've been aggrieved or their countries have a history of uh, being a victim of Japanese imperialism uh, will criticize. How dare you go to the Yasukuni shrine? Uh, how dare you even have something like this? Uh, it's your fault. You don't get to remember your dead in a positive light. You need to remember what you did to us. And then most of these other countries bristle at the very idea that they did anything wrong in the war whatsoever. That's what victory in war allows you to do. You get to control the narrative, okay? Uh, you get to control the narrative of what happened, um, and you get to control people's perceptions of who did wrong and who didn't do wrong. And usually these things become very black and white. Whoever lost the war was completely evil, 100% wrong. The, they provoked everything. It's their fault. And we were just purely defensive. We did what we had to do to put the world order back right, and we were good, all right, and in the process of restoring the world to good and putting down these evil provokers, um, you know, some stuff might have happened, but come on, we're not going to pay attention to that because uh, ultimately ours was a morally correct approach. Um, and you can't fault our intentions. And anything that we did uh, was in the stresses of having to deal with these, you know, assholes who tried to, to destroy the world. All right, and then, you know, the very idea that 
Chinese troops could have committed atrocities or that they were collaborators with the Japanese? I mean, the, all the many willing collaborators, various degrees of willingness to cooperate. But so you look at the historical records, you find out, hey, this isn't all, you know, coerced cooperation. There's some pretty enthusiastic collaborators with the Japanese as well. That has to get written out of these official narratives. Americans too. We tend to bristle at the idea that we could have done anything wrong in World War II. It was a righteous war. We didn't start it, so it's not our fault. All right, I remember, uh, I think it's, oh, it's well over 20 years ago now. I think it was around the 50th anniversary of World War II. So this would have been in the, in, in, uh, the end of World War II, the, the mid-1990s. It must have been 1995, I'm thinking. I might have the dates wrong. But anyways, it was around that time. It was one of these uh, big commemorations of the end of World War II. Um, and I remember hearing about it was big time in the news uh, that the Smithsonian Museum uh, in D.C. was going to display uh, the Enola Gay, I believe it was, uh, one of the, 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 the plane that uh, uh, transported the first atomic bomb. Uh, to drop over Japan. Um, and it was sort of, sort of, you know, intended to be this reflection on, uh, you know, the end of the war and all these sort of things. Um, and uh, there were, there were, there were protests. Uh, it ended up being a very ugly public spat in which people were arguing about whether or not this was okay that you should celebrate something like the Enola Gay, that you should celebrate something, um, uh, you know, that led to the deaths of so many people. And, uh, the, de and the details are kind of hazy right now, but I remember that it ended up being both sides. Uh, there was accusations that America had done wrong and that uh, you need to commemorate the Japanese war dead. And then other people were saying, are you kidding me? Uh, you forced us to do this. Um, and this was a righteous thing. And uh, this ended the war. Um, and we had to drop the bomb. We had to drop the bomb or else worse things would have happened. And it's all your fault. Anyways, these issues uh, come up. Um, and, uh, you know, people bristle at the idea that my culture, my country, Come on. Now, our intentions are always good. And if we did anything anything bad, it still sprang from the best of intentions. And it was the uh, circumstances that you gave rise to uh, that we had to respond to. And maybe a few things we shouldn't have done. But, you know, by and large, the lion's share of the blame is yours. Uh, the Enola Gay is actually uh, a subject of uh, much sensitivity today. Uh, it's now in a separate Air and Space Museum hangar um, in Virginia, um, still in the D.C. suburbs. I've gone to this hangar several times. They have one of the space shuttles there. Uh, they have all kinds of really cool uh, planes from the history of flight. Um, but they have the Enola Gay in there. And I remember when I first saw it, you walk up to it and you're on this sort of elevated bridge where, where, where you can see it suspended from the ceiling. Um, and I noticed they had this sort of glass spit guard, you know, when you go to like the buffet or something like that and you're getting your salad or you're, you're, you're have, have, having a sandwich at a deli made for you and they've got that, that glass spit guard or sneeze guard, whatever it's called. Um, they had one of those uh, uh, in front of the Enola Gay. And I couldn't help but wondering, you know, it was the only plane that was like that. All other planes didn't have anything obstructing you, uh, uh, the viewers, from the plane itself. And I couldn't help but wonder if that was a result of either uh, anticipating that someone might throw something at it, paint, you know, deface it, whatever, um, or that it might have actually happened and they put it up in response to that. But regardless, these are charged issues, um, you know. Um, and as with all historically sensitive issues, the best thing that you can have is information. <laughs> Archival information and try to get, you know, reconstruct as best as possible what really happened. You'll never get 100% what really happened, but you can get, you know, fairly close to it. All right, we can construct. I am a believer that we can have a pretty good idea 
of all the various factors that informed certain decisions. So outside of Japan, you know, we tend to take a very critical uh, perspective towards Japan and focus on all these things that make Japan look bad. Uh, but if you've ever visited Japan or spent time in Japan, you'll notice that they tend to commemorate other people's atrocities rather than their own. Uh, August 6th and August 9th, the 1945, are the days they get solemn attention and that they'll have ceremonies that politicians come out uh, to commemorate the uh, suffering and victimhood of the poor, innocent Japanese people. Okay, the Yasukuni Shrine is a sacred, revered place that you go to to show respect for people who fought for the Japanese nation. Um, and, you know, these are the things that get talked about. Not the Nanjing Massacre, not y y Unit 731, not the Comfort Women, not the Bataan Death March. I had a colleague one time who went to uh, uh, Japan uh, in August and uh, uh, attended one of these events, and he came back and he, he sort of observed uh, uh, Riley. He said, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, when I'm over there, they only commemorate our war atrocities, <laughs> but they don't commemorate their own. Um, that's absolutely true. In Japanese textbooks, you're not going to find this sort of stuff. Uh, or if it's there, it's going to be framed in a very benign way. The war in China, the invasion of China and everything that happened there is usually very cursorily talked about. And it's often referred to with the verb and advance and advance into China. It wasn't an invasion of China. Um, I once had a student from Japan and who took this class, Japanese Empire, and at the end of the course says, oh my god, I didn't learn any of this stuff <laughs> growing up in Japan. This is not the version of history we get. We don't talk about these elements of the Japanese Empire, um, you know, if it doesn't directly concern the Japanese people in the four home islands. So, as you know, over the past couple of episodes, and if you've been with me for the whole podcast, um, you know, I do my best here to be an equal opportunity publicist of all major atrocities during the war and of all the good, bad, and gray things that everyone does throughout history. So, with that said, let's now take a look at the one atrocity that the Japanese commemorate, uh, but pretty much no one else does. And then you can decide for yourself at the end what you think about the decision to drop not one, but two nuclear bombs on two different cities filled with unarmed civilians. Yes, I realize I am uh, leading you in a certain direction here, uh, but I'll admit that I'm leading you in a certain direction because uh, I already know the evidence that I'm going to be putting out here and the parameters of the arguments and whatnot. Uh, so you can get a sense of where I come down on this issue, uh, but I also want you to know that I have that approach and that's my reading of the evidence and you can you know, go your own way, obviously, if you like as well, but let's get to the evidence. All right, the prevailing post-war American myth that would eventually accumulate around the decision to drop the bomb, okay, is that we had a stark binary choice. One of two things had to happen. Either we have to invade the Japanese home islands with a concomitant massive loss of U.S. life, or we can drop this bomb from the air, no Americans will die, and the Japanese will realize how terrible this is, um, and uh, they will surrender. All right. And the prevalent post-war belief was that the loss of American lives would probably be in the hundreds of thousands, perhaps even a million. If you go back to uh, uh, teach, uh, videos that were shown in uh, American schools 
in the 1950s, you'll see interviews with President Truman in which he very solemnly and seriously declares that he believed that if we didn't drop the bomb, because now he has to defend it after, you know, now you know multiple countries have the bomb and everyone's worried about the bomb and you realize, uh-oh, we let the cat out of the bag. How do we defend our decision to actually do this, to drop it on a city, uh, a city full of people? Uh, and he would very confidently say, uh, yeah, a million Americans would have died if we had to invade Japan. And these statistics are always then cited in tandem with cherry-picked anecdotes about Japanese fanaticism. Oh, they're kamikazes. Oh, mass suicide. Ah, Japan, they have this history of the samurai spirit and whatnot. Uh, They won't surrender. The Japanese are uniquely martial, stubborn people with this pride that's so big that they can't possibly stomach the idea of surrender. All right, as we'll see, uh, you could uh, you, you you could cherry pick anecdotes and certain aspects of cultural phenomena uh, from any culture, anywhere in the world to make an argument like that. Um, and you could also realize that that doesn't re- really represent the entire population. In fact, it probably represents a tiny minority of how most people uh, live their lives um, and approach these sort of decisions. But that's what gets publicized. All right, and you have to, you know, the Japanese uh, also did their part to publicize that. It was in their interest to publicize the small handful of people who actually were willing to go on kamikaze missions, the very small number of soldiers who actually were willing to commit suicide and not surrender. Uh, You publicize that and make it seem like we're all like that when we're not. When they're not, we know they're not. We, 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 we now have memoirs and historical documents that show many soldiers did not want to kill themselves. They didn't want to die. Um, And sometimes they were forced into it. Um, But, you know, this is not representative of some uniquely martial Japanese spirit. Um, And yet that was the prevalent belief that was projected out into the world. And it was swallowed wholesale by people who had an interest in accepting it and saying, yeah, if we invade, (laughs) look at these crazy Japs. Uh, You know, we have to drop the bomb. Now, it is absolutely true that the top priority of the United States presidents, Harry Truman, and uh, 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 Roosevelt, okay, uh, Truman and Roosevelt uh, was to keep American casualties to a minimum. This, came, this comes through loud and clear in all the archival documents that we have. Their diaries, their letters, their interviews, that is not a disingenuous claim, okay? However, the larger truth here is that the statistics that were publicly cited to justify why we did this and killed six figures of Japanese, mostly civilians, who were unarmed, um, those statistics were more or less fabrications. And they did often did not bear a relationship to the actual statistics and thinking that was being uh, uh, bandied about behind the scenes among top military officials and uh, uh, civilian officials. All right. And the reality is, is that the atomic bomb, two of them, would have been dropped, even if the projections were only 100 lives were going to be saved. All right. That's the that that's the larger picture here. All right. Is that to the American public, they cultivated this myth that uh, up to a million Americans would have died because of these crazy Japanese if we have to invade them. Uh, But the reality is, even when, when you puncture through that myth and you realize that that's a myth that was fabricated to, to justify in hindsight what we did, uh, even if the numbers were 100 or 2 or 1, we still would have dropped those bombs. Why? Let's get into that. All right, the origins of the atomic bomb and knowledge of its potential havoc that it could wreak. 
The United States was the only wartime combatant that had the resources, the time, and the freedom to pursue research, long-term research that may or may not result in a workable bomb that can be used. Remember, the British are working on radar that has immediate benefits because the Germans are bombing you from the sky. Uh, the Germans want to have a rocket that can shoot over uh, across the English Channel and reach Britain, uh, you know, go great distances, and they're working on the V-2 rocket. The Japanese want to have stuff to use in battle, uh, bacterial and biological warfare. Uh, the United States has the luxury of sitting back and for years at a time pumping tons of resources uh, into a program where you have no threat, really, of, you know, it being invaded. You're not an active war zone. Um, and, you know, you, you can say, you know, maybe the bomb won't work work out and we'll still be fine. Uh, where the, all the other com major combatants are working on things, investing their resources in military tools that can be immediately deployed for immediately identifiable aims. All right. Uh, uh, in October 1941, Roosevelt, President Roosevelt authorizes atomic bomb research out of fears that German scientists would do so first. They didn't uh, in the end. They were working on rocketry. Um, but he was afraid. He was thinking, you know, Germans might do this. War is raging. Uh, Pearl Harbor has not happened yet, but it's clear that we're going to get involved in this somehow sooner or later. Okay. Um, the Man it was known as the Manhattan Project, as many of you probably know, overseen by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers under the direction of Leslie Groves. There were two bombs under development, a uranium bomb and a plutonium bomb. What's the difference between these? It does matter for what happens. Um, uranium is distilled from a rare natural uranium-235. All right. It is uh, something that is uh, uh, mined from a naturally occurring substance in the ground. Plutonium is an artificial element made in laboratories in Hanford, Washington, Washington State. All right. You need several pounds of either of these, you know, materials, these elements, to make a single bomb. That's a lot when you're talking about this sort of extremely rare volatile material. Several pounds is a ton. <laughs> that was a not literally all right um, by December 1944 just three years later President Roosevelt is told that the uranium bomb will be ready to go by August 1st 1945 and they're so confident that this one's going to work they say there's no need even for a test of the uranium bomb because we know this is going to work we're, we're quite confident in this however the plutonium bomb they said this needs to be tested first. I mean, we made this uh, of artificial elements. This is not a naturally occurring element in the ground. Um, we're not so confident on this one. All right, that one needs to be scheduled, uh, uh, tested first, and we're going to schedule a test for July 1945. Okay, by April 1945, after Roosevelt has died and Truman has succeeded him as president, uh, Truman is told about the quote terrible power of these bombs, and he is informed they could wipe out entire cities. Right. Entire cities have been wiped out during the war, uh, but it took, you know, thousands of uh, 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 air raids and, you know, uh, millions of tons of uh, conventional bombs dropped from the sky uh, in order to do that. All right, this is one bomb, one drop, the city will be gone. As a result, Truman forms a special committee to consider the implications of this new weapon, especially post-war politics. What's going to happen, not to the Japanese, who suffer from this, because we're going to win this war. Um, but uh, what's going to happen in the post-war environment? How are the other major powers going to react to this? What effect will it have on our relationships with them? 
So from May to June 1945, this committee that the special committee that Truman has formed meets five times and they submit their conclusions to Truman. The main assumption of these conclusions is that it is not a question of if, but when. The bomb will be used once ready. We're, that's why we're building it. We're not building these bombs to not use them. We're investing all this time and resources to create a weapon that will shift the balance of world politics in our favor. Of course, we're going to use it. That was a guiding, just natural assumption from the beginning. We're not building these bombs to not use them. And the conclusion of Truman's committee was that these bombs should be dropped in such a way as to maximize the psychological effect on the Japanese and force an early surrender. The ideal target, they said, a war plant with lots of worker residences nearby. I said, perhaps it's probably best not to drop this right on a city, find some sort of an industrial area, a war plant, um, where you can justify this was a military target. That'll also be a very important element of all of this. Because as you'll see later on, uh, historians have gone back and looked at the cities that actually had bombs dropped on them, and they said, there's really no evidence that these were significant strategic military sites. If they were, they would have already been firebombed, uh, because the U.S. owned the skies uh, by, by 1945, uh, the Japanese uh, uh, Air Force was decimated. They had no ability to contest American superiority of the skies. And we are firebombing Tokyo and other cities to an extraordinary extent. There's already massive casualties. Uh, if these cities uh, actually, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, if they actually had re- uh, military installations that were a threat, they would have already been firebombed by this point. All right, that's something to, to keep in mind here, uh, the, where you actually decide to drop these bombs. All right, now the committee spent most of its time, actually, pondering the likely effect of the bomb's use on American relations with the Soviet Union. The main questions, do we try to allay Soviet fears? Do we try to make them, you know, not be so scared of the post-war order and what we're going to do? Or do we want to, you know, uh, uh, intimidate them? is the best approach to the Soviets. Are these people who don't really know the subtle art of diplomacy and whatnot? And perhaps we just sort of use this as a means to intimidate them. Uh, in which case, we want to have the most spectacular explosion possible. Uh, and we want to publicize it. We want to have high casualty figures so they know this is what we're capable And the conclusion of the committee on this point was that use of the bomb will impress the Soviets and make them more manageable in Eastern Europe. All right. There were people who were talking about, you know, maybe this is actually going to spur the Soviet the Soviets on to create their own bomb as soon as possible, and then everyone's going to have a bomb, <laughs> and then the whole world's going to be in this environment where we could all destroy each other at the the drop of a hat. Uh, that was a minority voice that was expressed, but it's not seen as a major concern at this time period. Uh, generally, th- think uh, uh, generally, it's thought that the Soviets will be impressed, and it'll make them more manageable in the post-war era when both the United States and the Soviet Union are trying to jockey for position and influence. Uh, chiefly in Eastern Europe. All right. Meanwhile, on May 8th, 1945, Germany surrenders and all attention shifts to Japan. This is the same time that this committee is undergoing its work and giving its recommendations to Truman on how the bomb will influence the the post-war order. No one expects an easy Japanese surrender. As I said, even though we know that the idea of the intractable Japanese filled with pride and samurai spirit and every last citizen is going to resist to the end, we know that that's an image, you know, 
publicized by the Japanese to intimidate you, and to a certain extent that image is swallowed wholesale by the Americans. Um, but, you know, as a result of this, uh, you know, no one is expecting an easy Japanese surrender. Uh, our, our main uh, issue here is what were the actual numbers that were uh, 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 drawn up to uh, justify the dropping of the bomb. Now, American views of the Japanese by this point were very different than American views of the Germans. Uh, in general, Japanese wartime atrocities were better known in 1945 than the German ones were. Um, the Bataan Death March, the beheadings of white prisoners of war, uh, you know, these sorts of things. Uh, you know, these were publicized as they were actually happening. Uh, you know, you, uh, the U.S. forces take another island, kick the Japanese off, and they find the U.S. POWs, the American and British and Australian POWs in the camp, and they immediately are able to find out, you know, what occurred and publicize this to further make the Japanese look bad. Uh, so Japanese atrocities were quite well known by 1945, okay? And you also didn't have any, uh, you know, equivalent. There was no German equivalent to Pearl Harbor. Uh, which was really the only major U.S. humiliation of the war. Uh, you're taken by surprise, you are attacked, you're utterly defenseless, um, and major destruction is visited upon you by someone who you regard most likely as an inferior enemy. All right, You don't have the German equivalent of that uh, uh, like you do with the Japanese. So you have this particular uh, you know, grudge against the Japanese, this sense of revenge uh, as well for Pearl Harbor. Uh, American views of Japan were further formed through the brutal island hopping campaigns that were in the Pacific. And you're uh, you know, getting closer and closer to the Japanese home islands. Most of you are aware uh, it was pretty awful fighting that occurred on uh, Micronesia, Melanesia. As you work your way closer to uh, Taiwan and Okinawa, um, you know, there was tens of thousands of American dead. Uh, the Japanese suffered enormous casualties in all of these island hopping campaigns. It, it was well known that this, that this was vicious fighting. Um, there were also, as I said before, highly publicized suicides, the uh, kamikaze pilots, uh, group suicides in some cases. Okay. Um, often, as I said before, what got lost in all the publicity is that these tended to be minority cases. Many soldiers were unwilling to do it, and oftentimes the ones who did do it or made a big show of it were the officers, uh, those who were high up in the command, and they would often uh, try to force their soldiers to commit suicide, you know, to detonate a grenade in their hands and whatnot. Um, and we know that if they were in a situation where the, the, the soldiers were sort of trapped, they had no way to get out, and the officer had the ability to shoot them and kill them if they didn't comply with orders, um, then oftentimes they did do what they were told to do, which, you know, you have no choice. Either I detonate this grenade in my hand, um, or my officer is going to kill me. Because the officer, he's fully plugged into the propaganda. He really is a true believer in all this sort of stuff, most likely. Uh, but many of the soldiers are scared boys who are conscripted from rural Japan, uh, not as well educated, and they want to go home and see mommy and daddy. Okay, um, And they don't want to die for an abstract ideal, especially after they've seen a couple years of war and realized the horrors that are actually going on and how different it is from official propaganda. Uh, so we do know, actually, that the more research you do, we find out that uh, this was an image. This was a public image that was cultivated, but it had an effect. It's swallowed wholesale by your enemy who doesn't know any better. Okay, um, And the uh, thinking was is that if the Japanese home islands are defended as fiercely as those islands in the Pacific were, and Okinawa specifically, uh, huge casualties on Okinawa, then God help us. You know, I mean, it's going to be bad. So even though victory was certain, everyone knew Japan was going to lose, the cost of that victory was still not certain. 
And so if there is any sense that using the atomic bomb could help reduce American casualties, there was no qualms about using it on large number of enemy civilians. Remember, by this point in World War II, the bombing of civilians uh, was an established practice. It began with German V-2 rockets in London, where up to 40,000 people are believed to have been killed. It continued with the, terror, with, with, with the air raids and terror, terrorizing bombing of the German city of Dresden and other cities on the European continent. Uh, they actually came up with a term for the sort of bombs that were being dropped on German cities during this time. They're known as blockbusters. Uh, for people of a certain age, I guess I'm of a certain age now, I grew up, there was a video rental store known as Blockbuster. We went to Blockbuster all the time to rent videos to watch over the weekend. Uh, I had no idea until I started studying history that that name actually originates in the horrific ability of a single bomb to blow up an entire block of buildings. That's where that comes from. And uh, it's a good thing Blockbuster wasn't still around by the time that I started studying history because that would have uh, really turned me off to patronizing an institution, whether knowingly or unknowingly, that took its name <laughs> from a bomb in World War II that was designed to destroy an entire block of civilians in one drop. Um, and then, of course, Japan, too, in Asia. Japan had killed millions of civilians, most likely in China. Um, and the United States, let's not, let's not act like this is all the bad guys, okay? The United States had firebombed Tokyo. Once you dominated the sky and you had taken Okinawa and you had bases for which you could fly over Japan, drop bombs, and then come all the way back to an American military base, and you had no fear of what the Japanese could do to you in the sky, uh, you start, you know, the firebombing campaign in uh, the first half of 1945 was horrific. There are estimates that 87,000 people, you know, just regular civilians in Tokyo, were killed as a result of firebombing. Entire cities were decimated. Uh, you know, and these cities are still mostly built out of wood houses, so the firebombing was especially uh, effective in many Japanese cities. This is another reason why we say, you know, the military uh, uh, strategic argument of where we're going to drop the bomb. Uh, if there were truly strategic installations that the United States military was afraid of, they would have already been firebombed long before you needed to drop the atomic bomb. All right, how are you going to make Japan surrender? No one in Truman's inner circle believed that any single action would succeed. The consensus was that only a combination, some combination, which we don't know, uh, of five different actions were likely to force Japan's surrender. These things were Soviet entry into the war in northeastern China, Manchuria. When the Soviets uh, uh, renege on their non-aggression pact with the Japanese, if they do that and invade the Japanese forces in northeastern China, uh, that'll be a big blow. It was thought that the U.S. invasion of the island of Kyushu Remember the southwestern largest island, uh, 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 you know, if, if we invade Kyushu, that'll be a big blow. More firebombing, perhaps. We just keep up the campaign that we have. It's a relatively low-cost, low-risk thing to do. Uh, they can't kill us, but we can kill a lot of them. Uh, softening of the surrender terms. Let's maybe not offer not in insist on unconditional surrender. Let's maybe something else, and that'll work out better, and they'll you know come to the table. Um, and the atomic bomb. Some combination of this, they thought, would end the war. The only question was, which combination would end the war quickest, and on favorable U.S. terms. All right, what are favorable U.S. terms? Not giving the Soviets too much leverage in the post-war environment in, in, in Asia, and reducing American casualties. One, because you care about your own people in your own country usually. You seem to think that they're, you know, just in general, their lives are more valuable than others who are very abstract. Um, and two, for, you know, domestic 
popularity. Uh, you don't want to be the politician who is responsible for a bunch of uh, you know casualties of American sons. All right, that'll look really bad from a pragmatic perspective for your next re-election campaigns. All right, one thing that's important to understand here is that no one was looking for a reason not to use the bomb. All right, the guiding consistent assumption is that using the atomic bomb will increase the likelihood of achieving an optimum policy outcome for the United States. All right, it doesn't matter if only 100 U.S. lives are going to be saved and 100,000 Japanese will be killed. The body count is not seen as a one-to-one equivalency. Just take a look at the racist propaganda that circulated throughout the United States, the military, the civilian public, and whatnot during World War I. Take a look at the realization that even Japanese-American, you know, American citizens of Japanese descent uh, were put into internment camps. This is a world that many of us are unfamiliar with today, and oftentimes it's kind of shocking and depressing and horrific to see the uh, racism that was so open and so prevalent. You might say it still exists today, but it's just not so open sometimes. It was really open back then. All right. Um, And one Japanese life is not seen as equivalent to one American life. Nothing even close to that. All right. If we're going to save just 10 American lives and 100,000 Japanese have to die, that's fine. That's fine. On July 29th, think about this as well. Another consideration. We actually have an example of the uh, political stresses and calculations that Truman was operating on uh, under at the time. On July 29th, 1945, this is just like a week before the dropping of the bomb on August 6th. Truman gets a report that 800 American sailors had been killed when one of their cruisers was torpedoed in the Pacific by the Japanese. The Japanese are going to lose, but they still have the ability to fight in certain capacities. Um, And they still have ships that can, you know, send out missiles and whatnot. Um, And, you know, so here you go. This is an example in which You know, Truman is realizing American soldiers are dying under my watch, and we have a weapon that I think is capable of ending the war quickly and on our best terms, and will negate the necessity of having to invade the Japanese islands. All right, he's genuinely aggrieved of, you know, 800 more American men have died. And he's also afraid, though, he's a politician, he's also afraid of the the political backlash. What, 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 what are people going to think of me if I let Americans continue to die while the atomic bomb is available? Now, the general public doesn't know the atomic bomb is available by this point, but they will know one day, especially if you use it. If you eventually do use it, they're going to say, wait a second, when was that available? Was it available on July 28th, one day before my son died, in, uh, you know, when his ship was torpedoed by the Japanese? Because if it was, why didn't you drop it then? My son didn't have to die. Okay, in a democracy, that that does not go over well. Okay, Um, that said, what were the the statistical projections in circulation? This is a matter of uh, intense research and debate. Okay, Uh, what I can say is that scholars who have looked into this situation have found widely varying uh, uh, estimates in different quarters of the American military, the, uh, you know, American government of what the uh, uh, casualties might be. And it seems to be that numbers that actually were put down on paper uh, were as high as 220,000. They were as low as 31,000. General MacArthur at one point said that uh, uh, he thought that we would probably have uh, about 117,600 deaths in the taking of Kyushu. 
But then later on, he also revised this estimate and said, all right, or it's probably far less than that. Uh, the Joint Chiefs, Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, told Truman that there was about 31,000 that were lost in the taking of the Philippine island of Luzon. And that's probably a good uh, corollary to what would happen in the taking of Kyushu. Um, however, we do know, it does seem apparent that the only projection that President Truman himself saw, because he's ultimately the one who gives the green light, uh, you know, governments are complex bureaucracies. Not everything gets shared and, you know, with everyone else. And you don't always see what, it, what, it, what, it, what everyone else is working on, especially in the age before you have electronic media and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it seems that the only number that crossed Truman's desk that he was aware of when he made the decision was the, on the low end. It was 31,000. All right. Uh, so even though you have a number as high as 220,000, uh, we don't think that Truman actually saw that number himself or was informed that. To add yet another complicating wrinkle into all of this, uh, recent findings also show that the uh, military uh, felt compelled to pre-print 500,000 Purple Heart medals in expectation that they might be needed uh, after the invasion of Japan. Uh, what do you make of a number like that, of a realization like that? Um, you know, they're preparing for the possibility that these things might be necessary. Does it mean they truly believe that... A million Americans are going to die um, or, you know, casualties or whatnot. I mean, these are things that you throw into the historical mix with the evidence and you kind of have to come to your own conclusion about what that means. Uh, how do you interpret that sort of evidence that 500,000 Purple Hearts were being printed uh, in expectation uh, that we might have to invade Japan and thus these might need to be used? Uh one of the more important realizations, though, is what we what Truman himself actually knew versus or thought was going to happen versus the numbers that he very openly publicized during the 1950s after the war, when he then in hindsight had to retroactively justify what we did, um, especially when it was realized that it was overwhelmingly you know just ordinary Japanese unarmed civilians who died in the bombs. Uh, then he started raising the number all the way up to a million over and over again. A million Americans would have died. And that became sort of like the shibboleth, you know, the thing that everyone, uh, newspaper accounts and whatnot, mainstream journalism and everything, they just always kept going back to that number. A million Americans would have died if we didn't drop the atomic bomb. Therefore, we had to do it. Okay. What were the drawbacks to the various possible approaches to getting Japan's surrender? Um, if you use the bomb, uh, you know, what other considerations do we have? All right. Uh, all those things that we talked about, the five different actions that were in that combination, in the mix of things that would induce the Japanese to surrender. One of them was the Soviet entry. All right. What if the Soviets enter the war against Japan in China? Um, how's that going to play out for our prospects? That'll increase their presence in Asia and may even give them a pretext to share the occupation of the Japanese home islands with the United States. The U.S. is intending to occupy the Japanese home islands. If we let the Soviets have enough time where they invade China first, um, then they might have a legitimate pretext to say, hey, we were in the war, we helped fight the Japanese, it wasn't just you who caused them to surrender, therefore we should get two of the four home Japanese islands uh, during the occupation. Well, the United States certainly doesn't want to do that. So even though the Soviet entry is believed to be a major blow that the jet, that'll you know make the Japanese more likely to surrender, it could give more leverage to the Soviets. What happens if you soften the surrender terms? Well, that could embolden Japanese hardliners behind the scenes who don't want to surrender. They say, hey, look, the Americans are actually pretty soft. Uh, all we have to do is hold out, be belligerent, and not surrender, and they'll soften the terms. And hey, maybe we'll be able to keep Manchukuo. 
um, in, in, in China. Maybe we won't have to surrender in China. Maybe we'll be able to keep Taiwan. Uh, who knows what, what the possibilities were if it's not unconditional surrender. So they said there's risks to that. And then maybe they won't surrender at all and they'll keep fighting. Softening the surrender terms uh, from unconditional surrender to conditional surrender would also anger a lot of Americans, it was believed. Polls at the time period uh, uh, showed that 33% of Americans who were polled wanted Hirohito, Emperor Hirohito, to be executed at the end of the war. Uh, so if you soften the surrender terms, uh, that could anger a lot of Americans back home as well. Politicians have to be attuned to public sentiment. Plus, there were also no clear messages from the Japanese leadership, which which was itself uh, uh, sharply divided, on what sort of softened terms might induce surrender. They weren't sending messages to the Americans through various intermediaries where we're saying, hey, you know, if you were to uh, include this provision, we'd be more likely to surrender and, you know, no one, no one else has to die. There were lots of internal factions, okay, among the top leadership. Uh, the top, you know, uh, people who are actually making decisions is only, you know, eight or, you know, less than 10 people, including Hirohito. Hirohito uh, has the power to intervene and break the deadlock, and he does not do so. He does not do so in the run-up to the dropping of the atomic bomb, okay? Uh, and it's only when he eventually does, he eventually does intervene and tell his generals what he wants to have happen that they finally agree to surrender. Uh, he could have done that earlier, and he didn't. Um, and so there are no signs coming from uh, the highest levels of command in Japan that are giving signals to the U.S., hey, this is how you could soften your surrender terms and we will accept it. So you know, there's, there's blame on all sides here. The invasion of the home islands. Uh, what happens if we actually do invade? No one knows if it'll be a repeat of the invasion of Okinawa, which was quite brutal. Um, and, uh, you know, some people actually say that the invasion of Okinawa, one reason it was so brutal is not necessarily because so many Japanese were uh, committing suicide and fighting to the end. It was because they forced the Okinawans to do so, uh, under threat of being executed and shot themselves. And as a result, it was, you know, the Okinawans who are already in sort of a semi-colonial relationship with Japan, who ultimately bore the brunt of all the suffering on Okinawa and gave this impression to the Americans that all Japanese would be like this when in fact it was Japanese forcing many Okinawans to do this. Um, uh, but again, you don't know. Uh, our most recent experience was on Okinawa, and that was not pleasant at all. Um, and even the lowest casualty estimates are unacceptable. They're unacceptable. How do you tell the American parents of a slain soldier that your son died because we didn't want to kill any more Japanese than was necessary? Remember, it's not a one-to-one -one, uh, uh, equivalency with Japanese casualties and American casualties. One American casualty, from their perspective, is far more valuable than you know any number of Jap you know, abstract Japanese um, that you already have some pretty pejorative opinions about already. More firebombing. Let's just keep doing firebombing. Uh, big problem with that hasn't induced surrender yet, and we've devastated you know enormous parts of Tokyo and major cities. So if that hasn't caused them surrender, why would more firebombing cause them to surrender? The atomic bomb. Well. Not a whole lot of downsides to those who were involved in the, in the decision-making process at this time period. It was thought that it might be decisive. It is likely to intimidate the Soviets. It should decrease our casualties, perhaps dramatically, but even a little bit is, is, is good news. Um, we also want to see the results of our investment. We didn't you know, build these things to just let them sit in a room and not use them. Um, and masked Japanese casualties are largely irrelevant. So why not? Why not? Okay. Many scholars also believe that a big part of the decision-making calculus here is that it also was not okay just to drop one bomb. Uh, 
All right. Uh, they were going to drop two bombs no matter what happened um, uh, because they wanted to make sure that the plutonium bomb actually worked. They were confident in the uranium bomb, but the plutonium bomb they were not, and they wanted to see what would happen when the plutonium bomb actually went off. Um, and so it was also, many uh, scholars believe that from the beginning, they were determined to drop both of the bombs, um, and there actually were some worry that Japan might surrender before the second bomb was dropped, because once they surrender, you can't drop the second bomb, but you really want to see what happens when the plutonium bomb uh, is detonated. Okay, uh, so you know, sort of the uh, you know, unclimatic, climactic conclusion here is that no one really relished or agonized over the decision to use the bomb. This is total war. It's been total war for a long time. And we're in uncharted territories, and we have successfully developed a new tool that will maximize the outcome and the position of the United States in the post-war global order, and so forth, and therefore, we're going to use it, okay? Um, no one relished or agonized over its decision to use it. Now, let's get into the chronological uh, uh, lead-up to the dropping of the bomb. That's the Potsdam Conference. The Potsdam Conference takes place in July 1945. These are the weeks running up uh, to the dropping of the bomb on August 6th. Potsdam Conference is where you get uh, Truman, Churchill, uh, and Stalin meeting in mid-July uh, in order to plan for the, po the new post-war world order, uh, feel themselves out, maneuver among each other and whatnot. Um, and Truman has only recently become president uh, after Roosevelt died. Uh, he is terrified of being outmaneuvered by these old-hand politicians of Churchill and Stalin. Um, and so he tries to postpone the start of the Potsdam Conference until he receives news of a successful plutonium bomb test in the deserts of southwestern America uh, 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 on July 16th. On July 16th, he hears news. We've tested the plutonium bomb. It worked. We're ready to go. All right. He wants to make sure he doesn't meet Stalin and Churchill until he knows. You know, he has this sort of ace in his in his pocket. Uh, I have I have this unimaginable weapon that uh, I know they don't have, and we know it's ready to go at any time now. Truman, I don't know if he's all that great of a politician at this point. He actually sort of plays his hand and uh, leaks information of what he's got in ways that probably did not work out uh, to the benefit of the United States post-war strategic interests. Uh, he hints of the bomb to Stalin. He actually drops hints to Stalin that we have a weapon like this. Uh, he tells him, we have a new weapon of extraordinary strength. Well, Stalin's not an idiot. He's quite smart, actually. He understands exactly what Truman is talking about. And then he turns right around and tells his military officers, be ready to invade Manchuria by early August so that we can beat the bomb, or right after they drop the bomb, we can send our, our, uh, our military in. Because from the Soviet perspective, the worst thing that can happen to them is that the bomb does immediately induce the Japanese to surrender. And uh, they surrender before we've had a chance to invade the uh, northeastern China. Uh, remember, if Japan surrenders uh, uh, too early, from both the Soviet and American perspective, you're going to miss out on very valuable things that you wanted to, to do. Uh, the Americans won't be able to test the plutonium bomb, and the Soviets won't be able to invade China and get leverage among the civil war that's eventually going to break out between Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Party and Mao Zedong's communists. Uh, we want to have influence in the post-war order, and we have, you know, we're going to lose our pretext to invade anywhere where Japanese forces are if they've surrendered. So he says, be ready. You know, be ready to invade at a moment's notice uh, so we can get in, get in on the kill as well. 
Neither side knows which side will strike first. Truman also is worried, you know, will the Soviets invade uh, too early? And will that be a psychological blow to the Japanese and they'll surrender before we have a chance to drop either one of our bombs? That'd be a total disaster. Both sides want to be first in order to accumulate maximum post-war leverage. What about Truman himself? What did he believe about the effect of the bomb and whether or not it, 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 whether or not it would be decisive? Uh, insights from Truman's diary are actually contradictory. Can you? What else would you expect? Of course, contradictory gray areas, right? This is history. It's never black and white. Uh, his diary, which we now have access to, are contradictory regarding whether or not he believed the atomic bomb would be decisive or not. The first comment in his diary suggests that he thinks that the Soviet entry into the war will be decisive. He writes, quote, Stalin pledged he would be in the Jap War on August 15th. Fini Japs when that comes about. Fini, F-I-N-I, finished. The Japs will be finished when that comes about. That's pretty strong language, right? He's basically saying when the Soviets enter the war, the, the, the Japs will surrender. The Japanese will surrender. Uh, he seems to have no doubt in this one entry. But then look at another entry in his diary. Uh, he says, quote, Believe Japs will fold up before Russia comes in. I am sure they will when Manhattan appears over their homeland. That's the exact opposite sentiment. Now, he just contradicted himself in his diary. I am sure that the Japs will fold up when Manhattan, the bomb, appears over their homeland. And then he writes that he's confident that Russia, quote, will not be able to get in on the kill so much. Very vivid language there. They won't be able to get on the get in on the kill of who gets to take over Japan's empire after the war is over, because Japan's not going to be able to keep their empire. Uh, the victors of the war are going to dismember the empire and take over all except for the core Japanese home islands for themselves. So you know China's going to get Taiwan back and Manchuria back. Uh, uh, you know someone's going to get the Japanese home islands to occupy them at least for several years and have predominant influence there. And then, uh, you know, northeastern China. In theory, it has to go back to China. But whoever has an army stationed there will have leverage over the Chinese and can influence the civil war that's going to break out. All right. We also have another bizarre diary entry from Truman in which he says that we should drop the bomb on a military target, not women and children. But all four possible targets that they outline are clearly civilian ones with a huge civilian population in major Japanese cities without a ton of military value. All right. Otherwise, they would have already been firebombed. And Truman knows this. So one historian's judgment is that Truman is engaged in serious self-deception de self in order to justify dropping the bomb because he's already decided, we have this bomb, it's going to maximize our, our, our leverage in the post-war world, and so we're going to use it. And he's kind of come up with ways to justify to dropping it. All right, let's get to the actual dropping of the bomb. On July 26th, the Potsdam Conference results in a, 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 a pretty uh, unconditional uh, uh, no-holds-barred declaration to the Japanese leadership. It says, surrender or face, quote, prompt and utter destruction. Japan officially takes no notice of the declaration. Their top leadership is still divided. Okay, only the intervention of the emperor would have, bro would have broken the deadlock among his top officials, and he does not intervene after the Potsdam Declaration. So the U.S. military puts out the order. Drop the uranium bomb as weather permits, between August 1st to August 10th on one of four possible cities as weather permits. 
The four cities are Kokura, Niigata, Nagasaki, Hiroshima. Now, of course, you're, the names of two of those cities are probably more familiar to you, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Um, so these, again, this is some of the, the contingencies of history that you can't wrap your mind around. You're thinking about this and you're like, my God, this is almost totally random. It could have been any two of these four cities could have had 100,000 people wiped out in an instant. Um, and the people who lived in Kokura had no idea. They're going about their daily business, have no idea that in you know, five days' time, they'll be obliterated in a second after a blinding flash of light. Um, and you know the thing that determines who lives and who dies is the weather. Where are the clouds? Where's the wind? Is it raining? That's it. Oh my God, the fates of 100,000 people determined by whether it's going to rain or be a sunny day that day. You can't even wrap your mind around that. August 6th, the uranium bomb is covered in obscene handwritten messages written by American soldiers. Um, it is dropped over the, the city of Hiroshima, and it explodes at an elevation of 1,900 feet, 43 seconds after it was dropped. Extensive damage uh, to Hiroshima due to the flat terrain. Nagasaki, when it gets a bomb, will have more mountains. It'll sort of contain the uh, 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 explosion a little bit better. Uh, Hiroshima is much flatter. Um, and as a result, within a 4.4 mile radius, only a few earthquake-resistant structures would survive. Um, and the inner half mile of this radius would be instantly incinerated. Uh, estimates at the time, early estimates, is that the Hiroshima was a city of about 245,000 people, and about half the city probably died instantaneously, not counting later deaths, you know, from radiation and all the horrible things that people might have survived from. Uh, early estimates were anywhere from 70,000 to 130,000 deaths, uh, up to more than half of the total civilian population of the city. I mean, there is no way you can say that uh, 100,000 people were military targets, unless you buy what wholesale into the propaganda that every single Japanese citizen is going to fight to the death and no one's going to surrender. And, you know, and it's going to be this bloody house-to-house -house battle when you invade Japan. That's the only way you can justify saying that 100,000 people in one of these major cities need to die. The U.S. then follows up the dropping of the first bomb on August 6th with 6 million leaflets urging surrender to the Japanese people, with statements suggesting that it has many, many more such bombs, when in fact it has just one. The next bomb was scheduled for August 11th, but weather conditions ended up pushing it up two days, and it also ended up changing the target from Kokura to Nagasaki. Again, unbelievable. Right? Uh, weather ends up meaning you, it was going to be Hiroshima and Kokura. Now it's Hiroshima and Nagasaki. All right. Uh, what were the effects of the first bomb uh, uh, on sort of, you know, Tokyo leadership? On August 7th, one day later, Tokyo learns of the bomb's effects. Uh, Hirohito expresses his first desire to end the war, but does not issue a declaration of surrender. Um, and it's also unclear exactly what they know about what happened in Hiroshima. They know that a devastating weapon has been visited upon them, uh, but it's not like they have video reel of uh, what the bomb actually looked like or what the city actually looks like in this particular day and age, just one, you know, within 24 hours later. They know that something bad and devastating has happened, uh, but they probably didn't have uh, the sort of hindsight that we now have when we think of those videos of the mushroom cloud 
crowd and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Uh, that probably wasn't as uh, close to them in that sense, at least not within 24 hours as we now have today. Okay. Um, now the Soviets are alarmed. <laughs> They're alarmed by the dropping of the bum because, remember, they wanted to get in on the kill as well. August 8th, two days after August 6th, the Soviets tell Japan, uh, tomorrow we are in a state of war. Our non-aggression pact is over, and we are invading you tomorrow. This actually, uh, historians say, we don't emphasize this as much in the, from the American point of view, but it actually is very apparent that the Soviet declaration of war on Japan was a great shock to Japanese high leadership. Um, and they realized, uh, you know, uh, we didn't think the Soviets would actually do this. And if, uh, if it's just the Americans, we might be able to hold out. And you and the Soviets can sort of intervene and be a negotiator and whatnot. But if the Soviets are also declaring war on us, then it's completely over. Because the only place where we have undefeated forces that are sort of seem to be invincible is uh, uh, our army the army in China. Um, and the Soviets, if they invade, it's going to be in China. And uh, therefore, they will be able to defeat the Japanese army on the mainland while the Americans have defeated us on the water. All right. So the Soviet declaration on August 8th is actually, some, some historians actually think that it's more, uh, has a greater effect on the Japanese decision to surrender than the atomic bomb. Okay. Uh, Japanese leadership, when they get the Soviet uh, declaration, they realize now that the Potsdam Declaration from July 26 was now the most favorable terms of surrender. And if they uh, wait until the Japanese, uh, the uh, uh, Soviets, the Russians invade, um, they're starting to think, you know what, a Soviet occupation, if they end up occupying part of the Japanese home islands, that could be much worse than the Americans. Of the possibility of the US or the Russians occupying us. Uh, one of those countries is rich and democratic. The other one is communist and poor. Um, and most Japanese leaders were pretty rabid anti-communist, if you've been paying any attention to their views towards communism in China for the past couple of decades. All right. And their views and uh, actions toward unions and communist parties in Japan, uh, often actively suppressed. Okay, um, so there was a preference at this point thinking, you know what, we'll probably get a better deal under the Americans than we will under the Soviets if we're going to be occupied. On August 9th, one day after the Soviets have said, you know, we're going to declare war tomorrow, the Americans say, shit, we better get in and drop our second bomb or we're not going to have a chance to do it because the combination of one bomb on August 6th, the Soviet declaration of war on August 8th, um, the Japanese might surrender right away and we won't get an an another bomb in. So August 9th, the plutonium bomb is dropped on Nagasaki. Estimates are up to 70,000 dead almost instantly. And of course, uh, another 50 years of people, uh, an unknown number of people living with the agony of having survived the bomb. This shatters the belief of Japanese hardliners that the U.S. only had one bomb, and now they start to confront the specter of a popular uprising uh, in Japan, domestic, you know, the home islands, if they don't do anything. Um, now, from our perspective today, it's impossible to know if any one of these actions was decisive because they followed so closely upon one another. I mean, we're literally talking each day from August 6th to August 9th, uh, a major new development is occurring. Um, and Japan is not giving still the, their surrender uh, uh, declaration, even though they're, they're considering it now. Um, and so we don't know which one actually was most decisive. Okay, the cumulative effect, obviously, though, is clear. Hirohito does, in fact, finally intervene to break the deadlock, and Japan sends a surrender message to the Swiss on August 10th. Now, both sides, the Russians can say, oh, clearly he surrendered because we invaded. 
um, and the Americans can play up their side. Now, clearly they surrendered because of the bombs. This thus vindicates us and justifies our decision to use the bombs. Clearly, it was only a result of us using the bombs. This is why they surrendered. Um, you'll note in most American narratives of why Japan surrendered, the Soviet declaration of war, which perhaps may even weigh heavier on the Japanese high command, is often downplayed. It's downplayed because you want to make it look like, oh yeah, one bomb wasn't enough. It was only after the second bomb that they surrendered. So clearly we had to drop not only one bomb, we had to drop two bombs. Um, and the Soviet role often gets marginalized in here because you don't want to suggest that they might have surrendered in accordance with other combinations of those traumas that the Japanese leaders perhaps were even more frightened of. Hirohito himself seems to have been convinced that the Americans were likely to treat him better than the Soviets would. Uh, the Soviets, after all, had uh, uh, killed the uh, Russian czar. <laughs> um, you know, they usually aren't communists. Socialists usually don't treat uh, royalty or hereditary royalty all that well. And uh, Hirohito is thinking, you know, I'm probably going to get a better deal among the Americans. Most people are thinking you're going to get a better deal from the Americans now. If they occupy us, we don't want the Russians here. Um, hardliners, uh, Japanese hardliners, are actually also given an out by the A-bombs. Uh, they are given uh, more justification. They say, now we can claim that we were beaten by nefarious technology, not on the battlefield. This is something that will persist throughout the post-war Japanese world and official discourses. You will see this occur over and over again. The atomic bombs perversely will actually allow uh, any Japanese who wants to defend their decision to surrender and the just cause of the Japanese empire, uh, they'll say, look, uh, we only had to surrender because the Americans used this totally immoral uh, weapon that killed untold number of civilians. Look how cruel they are. Of course we can't continue to fight for our just cause anymore when they've resorted to horrible things like this. We would never do this. No one ever would do something like this. Only the Americans would do something like this. Um, and this will occur in Japanese film, in literature. Uh, you know, it's this idea that we had to surrender because they are less moral than we are. And, uh, and the fact that they use this bomb not once but twice proves that. Uh, otherwise, we would have continued to liberate Asia um, and do all the good that we were doing for Asia. But obviously, we can't compete with an enemy who has no scruples whatsoever. Now, the United States gives a carefully worded response to the surrender telegram uh, in, uh, mediated by the Swiss. He says that the, we say that the authority of the emperor will be placed under the supreme command of the allied forces and Japan's government will be established in accordance with the will of the Japanese people. Sounds very clear, but it's actually quite ambiguous. The authority of the emperor will be subject to the, the uh, supreme commander of the allied forces. That means there's no guarantees. We're not guaranteeing what we're going to do with the emperor. We'll decide later, and it's our decision. And then two, Japan's government will be established in accordance with the will of the Japanese people. That means the, uh, you know, there's no guarantee of what the government's going to be like as well. Who's going to be preserved? Who's going to be, what, what kind of a, a, a government are we even going to have? The will of Japanese people? What is, what is the will of the Japanese people? Who knows? All right, all politicians, they can manufacture the supposed will of the people. There's a lot of ways you can do that. You can make the will of the people be whatever you want it to be. Okay, so they know. They're, they're, they're savvy politicians as well. They know that that's code word for we'll decide what sort of a government you're going to have and then we'll just you know do whatever we need to to make it look like this is the will of the Japanese people.
This ambiguity in the U.S. response to the surrender uh, uh, telegram again precipitates an internal Japanese leadership crisis uh, until Hirohito once again has to intervene. Uh, and he intervenes finally and gives the final acceptance of the surrender terms on August 15th. And on August 15th, you have Hirohito's famous radio address in which he addresses the Japanese people for the first time and they hear his actual voice of their supposedly divine emperor for the very first time. He too singles out the American dropping of the atomic bomb as decisive in, in, in surrendering. He also plays up this idea that we ha we wouldn't have surrendered, our cause was just, uh, but now we have to because the Americans are using this immoral um, uh, weapon against us. And he singles out the atomic bomb. Uh, we can see why he's doing this. All right, it gives Japan the 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 moral high ground, uh, and it also has the uh, the unintended effect of reinforcing the American narrative after the war that we had to use the bomb. Look, even Hirohito said that the bomb is what forced him to surrender. We just take out the immoral gloss and say, of course we had to do this. It was totally moral. Uh, we would have lost so many American lives and, J and Japan started it. And they have all their own atrocities as well. So this was totally justified. You strip it of its, of its immoral gloss, put a positive spin on it, and both sides now have a vested interest in saying the bomb ended the war. Soviets had nothing to do with it. Bomb ended the war. Okay, and that's where you get your post-war sort of hegemony of the uh, 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 benevolence of the atomic bomb being dropped. Uh, the need for the atomic bomb to be dropped or else so much worse would have happened. The Japanese have their own spin on it. The Americans have their own spin on it. Both of them are selectively choosing information and uh, uh, things that uh, you know make them look good for their own purposes. And us, the poor commoners, are left to sort of uh, uh, sift through all the uh, jumbled, confusing evidence of history and try to make sense and say, why did we actually do this? <laughs> did we really have to kill almost 200,000 Japanese, mostly unarmed civilians, in an instant? To get the Japanese to surrender? Did we have to do it not once, but twice? I know, I mean, if you look at it, you start realizing there's some questions that need to be answered. There are some questions that need to be answered. All right. And I hope that I've uh, helped you, given you some of the evidential tools, the empirical evidence that will allow you to reach your own conclusion. You don't like the slant that I put on this? That's fine. History, there is no objective account of history. All right, you have uh, scholars, historians who say, I've looked at the evidence and this is what I've concluded. And here is my, if they're a good scholar, they'll say, here is the evidence that I've based my conclusion on. And then other people can look at the evidence themselves and say, yep, I think you did a pretty good job with that. Or nope, I don't think so. And I hope, you know, at a minimum, I've given you the tools where you can come to your own conclusion, even if you disagree with me, that this was a war atrocity. And if the U.S. had done this and then lost the war, <laughs> right? If for some reason we had developed the bomb, used it at some point, and then didn't win the war, you can bet your butt that Americans would have been executed at some sort of uh, international military tribunal for having committed crimes against humanity with the atomic bomb. I absolutely believe that. Things will not know. There's still a lot of questions that are frustratingly Hard to answer. How long the war would have continued without the bomb? We don't know because the bomb was dropped <laughs> and the Soviets invaded and, you know, that was it. We don't know. Is it possible that we could have not used the bomb at all and Japan would have surrendered by a combination of other things later on? Who knows? Who knows? Sure, it's possible. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Can't answer those questions because it didn't go on. 
we don't know how many U.S. casualties would have resulted if the bomb wasn't used, and you actually did have to do a U.S. Uh, an invasion of the home islands. Or maybe you didn't have to do an invasion of the home islands, um, but you still would have had your ships in, in the Pacific Ocean being torpedoed, and American lives would have been lost then. Uh, how many Americans would have died if we didn't use it? Who knows? Or how many Americans would have died if the Soviets didn't invade? Who knows? Was a Soviet invasion? Would that have been sufficient? Could we have just said, you know what? We'll wait till the Soviets invade. We'll make the Soviets think that we're going to drop the bomb, but then we don't actually drop it. And then the Soviets, then they invade Manchuria. And then because they're bogged down on the mainland, we can then go in and occupy uh, Japanese home islands and get there before the Russians. And then we'll still get everything that we want without having used the bomb. We don't know. And no one's thinking like that. All right. You, you made the bomb. You're going to use it. It's going to maximize your optimum position after the war. Okay, um, and there's all these questions that uh, we don't know. Certainly, Japan eventually would have surrendered without the bomb, most likely, with the combination of other events and uh, you know, given enough time and whatnot and pressure. But no one knew when or how or how many casualties there were. Um, and at the time, there were no major moral qualms about using this unprecedented new variable that might achieve most of your goals on the most favorable terms possible. All right, enough death and destruction and destroying the world as we know it. Let's try and put it all back together. What happens after the apocalypse? Please join me for the U.S. occupation of Japan in episode 58 of Beyond Huaxia. 